0: Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian podcast. This podcast is going to be our third and final excerpt from our new book, The Conservative Historian Collected Works. Now, as stated before, this book contains a number of essays, including the lead essay called On History. That was our first excerpt. This book also contains, and nearly half of the book, is our ranking of 45 presidents by conservative ideology. And as I keep saying, hint, FDR is not number third on our presidential ranking. That was the second excerpt. For this third and final excerpt, we're going to provide one of the columns that's contained within the conservative historian collected works and another ranking, though this one is of admirals throughout history. One of the things with the conservative historian is, is that we love military history, and therefore we have rankings within the book of all the generals, and we're going to provide a sampling of the rankings of the admirals, kind of the unsung military uh, people throughout history. But first, and to kick this off, climate change 200 million years ago. Yes, that's going to be our, uh, our free excerpt from the book, and that is going to be our column Climate Change, 200 million years ago, originally published in January of 2017. The conservative historian recently went to Chicago's Field Museum to see the Chinese terracotta warriors up close and personal. As with so many of these ancient historical relics, the question seemed to outweigh the answers. Why were there no images of Chinese Emperor Qin Shi Huang found in the tomb of any other excavation. Like Alexander of Macedon, there are no direct images of the Kinshi from his times. But unlike the Macedonian, there are 7,000 handcrafted statues meant to protect the emperor in the afterlife. Though this exhibit was fascinating, a permanent exhibition at the Field Museum overshadows all of the others. It is called the Evolving Planet, and it, quote, "...takes visitors on an awe-inspiring journey through four billion years of life on Earth." Unquote. Many visitors like to bypass the earlier geologic areas to get to the Mesozoic and its three periods, the Triassic, the Jurassic, and the Cretaceous. For those not into geologic eras, yes, That is where author Michael Crichton got the name for Jurassic Park, the middle of those three periods as part of the Mesozoic era. The Mesozoic era had the dinosaurs, and the Field Museum has a room of lifelike sauropods Well, that frankly makes even the most jaded PS4 player stand back in awe. Even before the Mesozoic, there was a fertile time of incredible flora and fauna called the Paleozoic era. The University of California Museum of Paleontology describes the importance of the Paleozoic era as, quote, at its beginning, multicelled animals underwent a dramatic explosion in diversity, and almost all living animal phyla appeared within a few millions of years, unquote. Yet that is just one of two of the most distinctive aspects of the Paleozoic. The end of the Paleozoic is described as, quote, the largest mass extinction in history that wiped out approximately 90% of all marine animal species, unquote. There are many theories around this mass destruction, including the cooling of the earth. In the Paleozoic, most organisms lived in the oceans, so they were susceptible to cooling waters the most significant extinctions occurred in the tropical belt. Now, there is no way of knowing for a certainty what Alexander or Shi Huangdi looked like. What were their concerns or ultimate motivations? But trying to reach back 200 million years for answers is far more complicated, even with the technology now at our disposal. So it might become essential to dispense with theories rather than conjuring them. The first theory that should be omitted is, are you ready for this? Humans caused the destruction of 90% of the phyla on earth. There it is. I know, I know. It's, it's pretty big insight. It's a great revelation coming from the conservative historian that, in fact, men had nothing to do with the end of the Paleozoic era and the destruction of all that life. As one walks the rest of Evolving Planet at the field, the visitor comes to what one group of students described as, quote, monkey man, unquote. Alas, for the future of our republic, those students were doubly wrong. Lucy, which is is represented here by that statue that looks, I guess, a little bit like a monkey and maybe a little bit like a man, but Lucy was neither monkey nor man. It was a statue of the Australopithecus afarensis discovered in 1974 and dated back to roughly 3 million years ago. Lucy is possible early branch of the tree that would lead to the genus Homo and the species sapiens. This creature, the Homo sapien, would not grace the earth until 200,000 years ago, almost a full 2 million years after Lucy. Note the time differences between the first humans and the end of the Paleozoic. It can be averred that neither greedy capitalists nor proto-bourgeois was responsible for the Paleozoic end. There was undoubtedly climate change, but not human-made climate change. Those scientists who detest so-called deniers might wish to make themselves aware that the earth is a living organism that often puts paid to the creature's ambitions that live upon it. Climate change exists, not denying that. The end of the Protozoic, the Paleozoic, the nature of the Mesozoic all proves this. It is also undeniable that humans have affected the planet. What is up for serious debate are two questions. What are the actual known human-made effects and what are the remedies for possible destructive practices? The human made climate change community had made three significant mistakes to bring their policies to fruition. First, they used alarmism and bullying tactics as opposed to concerted education. In Al Gore's 2006 documentary, Inconvenient Truth, he stated that the glaciers would be gone in 10 years. 11 years later, the glaciers still exist. Second, They advocate massive governmental intrusion and coercion to achieve their means. Third, they often conflate one issue with man-made climate change. Assuming that human-made climate change will destroy the planet and that drastic measures to the world's economies need to be inactive will not solve racism. And yet racism has been a claim that somehow connects or attaches itself to human-made climate change because the same people who advocate for eco-friendly policies are also convinced of classism and racism. One of the aspects of today's era, the Cenozoic, was the Ice Age. In the 1970s, there was some concern that cooling temperature were affecting agricultural production. In a 1975 issue of Newsweek, writer Peter Gwynn states, quote, to scientists, these seemingly disparate incidents represent the advanced signs of fundamental changes in the world's weather. The central fact is that after three quarters of a century of extraordinarily mild conditions, the Earth's climate seems to be cooling down. Meteorologists disagree about the cause and extent of the cooling trend and its specific impact on local weather conditions. Unquote. What if combating global warming actually creates an ice age. Settled science once said that the Earth was the center of the universe, and Pluto was a planet. The Earth revolves around the sun, and a virus causes Ebola. That is settled. Human-made climate change and possible solutions are not resolved. In all human activity, there are three types of outcomes. The first is the intended or desired outcome. The second is what actually happens. The third is what is already known. A government gives a citizen food stamps intending to provide temporary relief so that the recipient can spend their time and money on obtaining a decent job, abrogating the need for the food stamps. That is the intention. The recipient, though, can either try to get that job or use the stamps in place of working, creating a disincentive to work. Either of these scenarios is the actual outcome, and they can be unintended. There are many opinions on the efficiency of these programs. What is known and what is known is that the government provided the money, and they could decide not to spend the money, and therefore they control either outcome. Whoever allocates the stamps, the government has the power in climate change regulation. It is unknown whether regulation will have the desired outcome, but what is beyond debate is governmental control over industry, over business, and over individuals will be significantly increased. In all policies that involve greater governmental control, this dichotomy between knowns and desires need to be addressed before any signatures are signed and any policies implemented. That is the end of our column and now we're going to give you a brief sample of rankings of the greatest admirals of all time. Top 10 Admirals in History As with any listing, the determination of the criteria can be as important as the list itself. Here are the selected criteria for this list. It can encompass any period and any person. The admiral must be in charge of a navy during a time of victory and have a direct impact on that victory. But where this list digresses from a similar one we fashioned for generals, the admiral need not have been in direct command of a great win, but instead was the architect of that victory. It was Admiral Spruance who won midway, but it was Nimitz who put Spruance into that place. Another differentiation is that an admiral who won a single, decisive victory can be added to the list, assuming that such a triumph changed history clearly and profoundly. Thus Agrippa, Togo, and Themistocles make this list despite really only one significant naval engagement. An admiral such as Barbaros, Carradine, Pasha does not get on the list despite his many victories on the part of the Ottomans. Part of the challenge of this list is that so few admirals in history engaged in a single major fleet action that also had decisive potential. Nelson, who participated in at least four major fleet actions, was a brilliant technician and oversaw a battle that changed the face of Europe. Well, it makes the very top of the list easy to manage. As with the generals, we use six fundamental principles of selection. Any culture, any time, directly responsible for the success. The land now, sea later, male-dominated, influential over time, and global, not just Western. Even more so than with generals, we were concerned with a Western bias. However, the catalog of projecting sea power as opposed to land is not as historically prominent, especially in ancient and medieval times when ocean trips were far more treacherous. Whereas the number of Europeans balances with that of Asian, African, and South American generals here the Europeans tend to be a little bit more dominant on our list. Number one, Horatio Nelson, 1758 to 1805. Most naval leaders achieved their success with one penultimate victory. In Nelson's case, there were four fleet actions, two of which were under his direct command, and the other two won due to his initiatives. In the case of Trafalgar, his victory over a superior French and Spanish fleet not only limited Napoleonic expansion but ensured the British hegemony of the oceans for the following 100 years. That is an impact. Rarely has a single fleet action had that kind of impact as Trafalgar. This was not just another giant naval engagement. Nelson employed unorthodox tactics, such as allowing his opponent to cross his T against all naval conventions. Nelson put his flagship victory in the van of the attack instead of the middle of the line. Finally, At the height of the battle, Nelson was mortally wounded. At the pinnacle of his career in Britain's sea preeminence, the greatest admiral was cut down. The most imaginative minds could not equal this story in Hollywood. I'm going to give you a little hint into the number two and number three. They're from Asia, and both these countries are very close together. That is about the only hint that I'm going to give you, and hope that you really enjoyed the excerpt. Now you can purchase the Conservative Historian Collected Works on Amazon. All you need to do is go to Amazon and type in Conservative Historian Collected Works and it will pop right up. You have a choice of either Kindle or Hardcover version. This is Bell Avis and really appreciate you listening, not just the this excerpt, but all of our podcasts. Thank you.